Pretty off. Well, the soundboard is new, and uh, the guys are getting used to it. I'm, I'm grateful for their their uh, faithful service to to making sure we have sound and everything sounds good week to week. So they'll get those things worked out. I'm sure of it. All right. Well, today is a good day. I'm back with you after a Sunday away. I worshipped as a guest in an Episcopal church last week. It was great, but it made me very, very grateful for our fellowship here. Uh, it's a good day because it feels like spring is in the air, doesn't it? This is that we even have the air conditioner on in this room. Easter is less than a month away, so sort of let that blow your mind. It's coming. And it's a good day because we just installed an awesome group of new church members. It was really cool uh, to hear their testimonies here during the uh, Sunday school hour. Really a blessing. So cool to watch God just build his church. And last but not least, it's a good day because we come to the closing of chapter 1 in the book of 1 Peter. And what we have in front of us is a passage that instructs us on how we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And I love it when our study of a book lines up perfectly with what's going on in the life of our church. So today, as we affirm those entering into covenant membership, and today we have a scripture passage that underscores how we are all to, to live in covenant membership. And I would say that there are two indispensable keys to the life of a local church, and they are the two keys that are highlighted in this morning's passage, and they are truth and love. For a church to be vibrant in its testimony, for a church to exhibit spiritual life and be a place that reaches and cares for people, two things have to be absolutely obvious in the life of that church. Truth and love. Pastor Tim Keller says it very succinctly. He says, truth without love really isn't truth. Love without truth really isn't love. They have to be together. If a church is only focused on truth, only on doctrinal precision and head knowledge, then that church will be cold and intellectual. If a church is only focused on love, then they'll likely be undiscerning and somewhat hollow. They'll have what J. Vernon McGee used to call sloppy agape. You know, lots of warm fuzzies, lots of good feelings, but, but none of it really anchored in anything that's, that's solid or meaningful. So truth and love. Let's see if you can see those two things in our passage today. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22, and I'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 25. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter writes these words. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. So as we've been saying for several weeks now, chapter 1 of 1 Peter contains two parts. Verses 1 through 12 describes the blessings of salvation. These are what I have referred to as the indicatives of our salvation. And the indicatives of salvation are what is unquestionably true about God's sovereign and saving grace. And as the people of God, we should never get over 
these gospel indicatives. We should never outgrow them. They are not just sort of the elementary ABCs of the Christian faith. They are the A to Z of the Christian faith. They are the whole of what it means to be someone who loves and follows Jesus Christ. We should be returning to the gospel indicatives time and time and time again. They are the fuel. They are the motivation. They are the foundation of what it means to be a people called according to his mercy and guarded for an inheritance that waits for us in heaven. That's why we're committed to the gospel here at Eden and Beach Church. It's one of our core values. We always want to be articulating the indicatives of the gospel. We want to be proclaiming the, the glories of the gospel. We want, we want to see the, the facets and, and the tenets of the gospel crystallizing in the hearts and the minds of our people. Because these truths, they're not only vital to your initial belief and response to Jesus. They're vital to your ongoing spiritual growth and maturity as well. You never get past the gospel. You never get past these indicatives. And so that's what Peter opens with because he wants these exiled, suffering Christians to know God's grace toward them. He wants them to know that it is rich and full and sure and beautiful. It's not based on their performance or on their personality. He wants them to know that God's election of them is not based on anything in them. Their spiritual identity is established in God and by God. So it's not by heritage or birth or religion or morality, but according to what? What's it according to? Chapter 1. According to his mercy. So very important for us to remember that in the church, isn't it? So the first half of the chapter, we have those indicatives of the, sal of the salvation that we've received. But then, starting in verse 13, Peter tells us three ways, starting out, three ways that we should respond to salvation. And it's there he moves from indicatives to com uh, imperatives. So from bedrock truths to commands. And he says there, be holy as God is holy. He says, set your hope on grace. He says, honor God and reverent fear. And, and these, these imperatives, these commands, they're set out as duties that Christians are to give to God. This is our Godward obligation. Be holy. So be set apart. doesn't mean be perfect, but be set apart. Be other in the culture in which you live in. Be holy. Set your hope on grace. That grace in the passage or in the context is the glory of Christ appearing. Set your hope on that. Look to the glory of Christ when he returns. And then honor God, your Father. In reverent fear, honor God. Now, your positive response to these duties, to these obligations, it doesn't save you. Your response doesn't earn God's favor. But it does display a heart in you that's been saved, that's been captured by the grace of God. So these first three imperatives, be holy, hope on grace, honor God, there they are. They're Godward in their orientation. And today we move to another imperative. We go from vertical duties to horizontal duty, and today's horizontal duty is love one another. Love one another. Who do you love? That's the classic old Bo Diddley song, right? Ask yourself that question this morning. Who do you love? Because we're going to look at this passage in three frames this morning. We'll look at how truth promotes love, how truth produces life, 
and how truth must be proclaimed. So the central point of the passage is a call to love. But that call to love is fundamentally connected to God's word, to the truth that he's laid down. So first point, truth promotes love. As we get into verse 22, we see a connection between our obedience to the truth, a connection from that to also the purification of our souls. And at first glance, we might read it to say that our ongoing obedience is what purifies us. And therefore, the more obedient we are, the more pure we become. Let me caution you. That's not what the verse is saying. Not really. The link between obedience and purification is connected to our belief in the gospel. We recognize the truth of the gospel. That God is a holy God, that we are damnable sinners, that, that, that we are people who have rebelled against our creator. People who in our rejection of God, we have gone our own way, but our creator comes to us in the person of his son and provides a sacrifice for our sin. And our obedience to that truth, that truth that God loves us and, and has sent his son to die for us, it's made up of a proper response. And the proper, obedient response to the truth of what God has done is repentance and faith. If we repent of our sin, that means we agree with God about the grave nature of our sins, and we turn from them, and then we put all of our trust in the work of Jesus. As we do that, we are being obedient to the truth. And the result of that obedience, the result of that repentance and faith is purification. See that? So it's not our ongoing moral obedience that gives us purity. It was at salvation that you received purification. It was at the work of, it was the work of the cross that gave you purity. The word purified there in verse 22, it, it, it's a perfect tense participle. And that may not mean much to you, but it, it, it does have some punch. Perfect tense describes a past action with a continued result. And so what that means is this. When we were purified by the work of Jesus on the cross, that purification stays with us. So not only does God cleanse your unclean past. Who has an unclean past? Not only does he cleanse your unclean past, he also cleanses your present and your future. In fact, he gives your heart and actions. He gives, he gives you new capabilities altogether. You probably are familiar with Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel prophesied of what God would do for believers in the new covenant. That's me and you. God revealed this to Ezekiel. Ezekiel wrote it down. He said, this is what's going to happen in the new covenant. This is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes and, and saves the people for himself. Listen to this. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unclean, uncleanliness. And, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Eight times in five verses. Says I will. I will. I will. I will. This is God's work. God's 
purifying work. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to us. He purifies. He cleanses. We sing songs about this purification, don't we? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And I love the refrain, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their... It's like, it's like this hammer beating the truth into our head. All the guilty stains are removed because of the blood of Jesus. But notice, as I return to verse 22, notice our obedience to the truth, our obedience to the gospel's demand to, to repent and trust in the work of Jesus. It purifies our souls, crucially important. But it also entails a purpose. The purpose is the prepositional phrase that comes next. You can see it there. For a sincere brotherly love. So the purifying work that has taken place in your life is not an end to itself. The work doesn't end with cleansing. The cleansing leads to something. It leads to love. The purpose for which God has purified your soul is not merely individual. It's social. You are made loving. And to be made loving means your attention turns away from yourself and on to others. There are four marks of love outlined in this passage. First, the love Peter is expecting he says it must be sincere. That word simply means unhypocritical. And underlying Peter's use of the word, of, uh, the word sincere, is, is the practice of ancient Greek actors who would, who would wear masks to play a part. When someone is acting like someone they are not, they are being insincere. He says, no, no, no. Our purified lives call us towards sincere love, not pretend love. Not acting like it, love. Not putting on a mask sort of love. And that love is born out of sincerity of heart. And that sincerity of heart says this. It says, I've been loved. I, I see that I've been loved. I'm being loved. I will forever be loved. And this love that God has given me it is the joy of my life. And in sincerity of thanks and worship and gratitude and praise, I long to show that love to the people that God has placed in my life. And because God is the reservoir for that love, I can give as much love away and I will never run dry. One of my favorite old sermon illustrators is a man named William Beterwolf. And he lived in the early part of the 20th century and Dr. Beterwolf once shared the story of an, of an incident involving a construction engineer who was inspecting a building. And while he was out on a scaffold about three stories high, he suddenly tripped and, and his body plummeted to the ground in what appeared to be certain death. And Dr. Beedworth says, a workman below happened to be looking up just as the builder fell. And since he was standing where the man's body would strike the ground, he instantly braced himself, taking the full impact of the falling man. The engineer was only slightly injured, but the workman was driven into the concrete with almost every bone in his body broken. He walked the streets from that time on as an object of pity. Later in an interview, a reporter asked him how the man whose life he had saved was treating him. The crippled man's reply was, well, 
He gave me half of everything he owns. I also have a share in his business. He never lets me want for a thing. He is constantly concerned about me, and, and hardly a day passes that I don't receive from him some little token of remembrance. It's a beautiful story of gratitude, isn't it? If we are genuinely grateful for Christ, having caught us when we were falling to our death, then we should have a proper response toward God, and we should have a proper loving response toward others. People know, who know that they have been loved much have a capacity to then love much. That's how it works. So sincerity is important. Second, the love Peter talks about is familial. Brotherly love is the phrase that's used in the passage. And that phrase in English is actually the single Greek word, Philadelphia. And what is Philadelphia? It's the city of brotherly love. See how that works out? But the, the exact translation of the phrase in verse 22 is actually not brotherly love, it's brother love. And what translating it that way helps us see is that in the church, we are not to love each other like we are brothers. We are to love each other as brothers. Our church is not to be like a family. Our church actually is a family. And you know what? Family's just family. You know, you, you don't care what one of your siblings has accomplished or, or how great one of your brothers or sisters might be in the world's eyes. They're just, they're just your brother. They're just your sister. Yeah, everybody might think they're great, but you know everything about them. You know they're weird and they smell funny and they do crazy things. Christ is the head of the body, the head of the family. Everybody else is just body. There's no hierarchy in the church. There are no super Christians. And I say it that way because we all need to love each other like the ground is level. Because it is level. None of us has arrived. God is still working on all of us. There might be an appearance of strength in one person, but in totality, we're all a piece of work. And I would say this as your pastor, please, please minister this kind of love to me. I need it. I need your godly care. I need your godly affection. I need your prayer. I need your accountability. I need your, your, your rebuke and your encouragement. All of us need it. And when I stand in this pulpit, I, I don't stand as a man who's arrived. I minister the love of Christ to you out of a deep sense of my own need for that love. You see, we're all equally needy. Some of us have our needs met more than others, but we all have the same need, that need to be loved. So to extend what I'm saying, I'm saying this. Everyone in this room this morning is still in the midst of God's sanctification. This process of becoming more like Jesus. Everyone in this room is still facing the realities of life in a, in a fallen world and in broken relationships. And, and so we stand alongside one another and when your knees are weak, I'll hold you up. And when my heart is giving, away, give, giving way to doubt, I need you to encourage me. When problems loom so large that it's hard for us to see Jesus, we want to give each other's eyes to see him again. That's brotherly love. I will give it to you. You will give it to me. We will all give it to each other. 
We won't pretend we don't need it. We won't pretend that we've arrived. We will express a deep desire for it because it's a necessary part of what it means to be a family. Third, and here we open up the command that's found in the passage. So it's not just an, expect- an expectation or, or, the, or a goal of love that Peter has in mind, but he actually commands us to love. And in the second half of verse 22, in the command, Peter changes the word for love. He goes from phileo love, brotherly love, to agape love. And agape love isn't emotional as much as it is willful. Scholar and commentator D. Edmund Hebert says, Agape love is a love of rational goodwill that desires the highest good for the one loved, even at the expense of self. So it's self-sacrificial love. It's, it's love that lays its life down. There was once a girl who asked her boyfriend a question. She said, do you love me? He said, well, yes, of course I do. She said, well, do you love me enough that you would die for me? And he said, dear, mine is an undying love. <laughs> Get it? Sometimes it's so serious, you can't even tell the joke. <laughs> so bad, I'm sorry. Agape love, sacrificial. This is why agape love, in, in whatever categories we have for love, it's the one closest to God's love for us. Self-sacrificial, it lays its life down. What did God do for us? He sacrificed his son, laid down his life for us. Tim Keller says it this way, if your definition of love stresses affectionate feelings more than unselfish actions, your way of loving actually cripples your relationships. Let me say that again. If your definition of love stresses affectionate feelings more than unselfish actions, your way of love actually cripples your relationships. What is he saying? He's saying, if your loving actions are always and only dictated by your feelings, you're doomed. Your relationships are doomed. Because love is an act of the will, not just your emotions. Your emotions are okay. But if you can't love out of your will, if love is not a choice, then you're not really loving in the way that God loves. And within this agape love, there are two more sort of marks of this command to love. And those are the blanks that are remaining there in your notes. Third, this love we're called to is love that must be earnest. What does earnest mean? It means zealous. It means motivated. We're to love deeply. And what this means is that I'm looking for places to love. It means I have my eyes open and I have my ears open and I have my heart open. And I'm not just waiting for opportunities to come to me. I'm not waiting for the church to design a program that I can participate in. I'm not waiting to be pointed to need. I'm alert to need. I'm ready to love. And I'm going to pounce when I see it. I'm zealous and committed and active and looking for those opportunities to incarnate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask again, does that describe you? Are you scanning the situations and relationships in which God has placed you in your community, in this church community, in your circle of friends or your place of influence? Are you looking for ways to love with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? I guarantee you they are there. If you're looking for them. 
We're all equally needy. It's just that some people are having their needs met more than others. Find those people. And then the final word, pure, says from a pure heart. So this is love without mixed motives or ulterior motives, which means I'm not loving you because I want something from you. I'm not loving you to grow in your favor or to place you in my debt or to be thought well of or to be accepted or to be respected. I'm loving you because I want to be a part of God's good work in your life. That's my motive for loving you. That's pure love. And you know what? All this is hard. It's hard for our relationships to, to rise to the level of what I just described. Sincere, brotherly, earnest, pure love. But what's encouraging is that Peter is saying that our obedience to the truth, our repentance and faith, actually gives us the capacity and the motivation to love this well, to love this completely. Truth promotes love, and that's so important for us. We live in a world of selfishness and pride, but the gospel creates a community of people who are called to lay their lives down every day to sincerely love and care for each other. You know what the great enemy to love is in the church? The great enemy of love, same as anywhere else really, is selfishness. If life is about you and, and church is about you and, and other people are to revolve around you, if, if you're the center of your own existence, you, you will not love. Selfishness and agape love, they do not coexist. Truth promotes love. Second point, truth produces life. Verse 23 starts with a wonderful New Testament truth. It's the truth of the new birth. Since you have been born again, the text says. Being born again, the new birth is the newness of life that exists in the believer. As someone who comes to believe in Christ, you move from death to life. From dead to the things of God to alive to the things of God. From rejecting Christ to accepting Christ. From grave to resurrection. Theologians call it, they call it regeneration. We are made alive by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit quickens us to the work of God. John chapter 3 is the most prominent New Testament chapter on what it means to be born again. There Jesus has been confronted by Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious leader, but he honestly is seeking Jesus. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And it blows Nicodemus away. He doesn't understand. He doesn't have the concept in his head. He doesn't have the category for what that means. And here in this text, we're given the source and the means of our regeneration. The source and the means. The source is imperishable seed. That's how we're born again. Imperishable seed. That's from which we are born again. And this word for seed appears only here in the New Testament. And what it really is pointing to, because there are other uses of the word seed, but what this one is pointing to is a father's seed. A, a father's seed out of which conception and, and, and life is formed. Yet at the same time, in the human sphere, that kind of seed is perishable. It's corruptible. It's subject to decay, which is why it gives you know, rise to life that is corruptible and subject to death and decay. But the new life of the believer is not from perishable seed. It springs from that which is imperishable. 
the supernatural source for a, for a believer's new life, for, for new birth, is God's creative grace, which doesn't decay, it does not die. That's the source. We're a family, we're brothers and sisters because we have the same Father. Not physically, but spiritually. He has given each of us life through this imperishable seed. That's the source. The means for the new birth is the word of God. That's what God uses as the instrument of his regeneration. And that's exactly what James 1.18 teaches us. James 1.18 says, by his own will, by God's own will, he brought us forth. He brought us into relationship with himself by, James 1.18 says, the word of truth. Truth produces new life. Folks, this is why we teach the Bible the way we do at Enid Emmy Church. Because it's the word that produces new life in those, who, in those who are lost and far from God. The word is the prescribed means to accomplish God's saving work. You have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Yet so many churches don't preach the Bible. They try to get people to respond to pep talks and programs and all kinds of hokey things. And in doing that, they demonstrate that they don't really have confidence in the word of God. They don't think the word can do what it says it can do. But it's only the word of God that will cause someone to be born again. It's only the word of God that can do the work being described here. Folks, my commitment to you, the commitment of the elders to you is this. We will preach God's word in this church. We won't be satisfied in just using the Bible as a kind of, of seasoning for all the wonderful things that we might think will help you. We won't tack Bible verses onto sermons like sort of a PS and a Hallmark card. We won't trust the Bible like a condiment, or excuse me, we won't treat the Bible like a condiment to, to make better our other religious offerings. No, 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 no. We will give you Bible, God's word. It's imperishable, it's living, and it's abiding, and it remains forever. Peter goes on to quote Isaiah 40. He says, all flesh is like grass, which means all of mankind is like grass. And all man's glory is like a flower of grass. All of man's accomplishment and glory and creativity and ingenuity is like the flower of grass. So maybe a little bit better than grass, but still grass. And what is the fate of those things? The grass withers and the flower falls. The people who are running for... The office of president. By the way, go vote on Tuesday. Make that happen. But the candidates who are putting, so many people are, are putting all of their hopes in. You know what? Those men, that woman, they're like grass. All of their gifts and skills and accomplishments like flowers of the grass. The Oscars, which is happening tonight. All is being revved up to celebrate that event. Red carpets and dresses and awards and gold statues. Just flowers of the grass. Ultimately, all of it will wither and fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The poet said it powerfully. Hammer away, ye hostile hands. 
your hammers break, God's anvil stands. That's God's word. It stands. Now the last frame of the passage, and I'll be wrapping up. Second half of verse 25. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. Here, Peter, he's declaring the good news that the apostles were preaching. The good news that these believers in Asia Minor had laid hold of. It is God's word. It alone has the capacity to change hearts. It can be used of the Holy Spirit to bring about new birth. It's imperishable. It's eternal because it belongs to the Lord himself. It's his word. And because it was preached to them, it can have all these effects that are being described. It can bring about new birth. It purifies. It promotes deep, earnest, agape love. It can do it all. In Martin Luther's final sermon, he said this concerning the preached word. He says, if you, don't, if you do not want God to speak to you every day in your house and in your parish church, then be wise. Look for something else. And what's the implication of that? If you do want God to speak to you, go to his word. Hear his word preached. R.C. Sproul said this, The power of a ministry is not in the preacher or in the novelty of a program. The power is in the word of God, just as Hebrews 4.12 says it. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a living word. It's a powerful word. And by your obedience to the truth, by your response to its power, and by being born again and purified and cleansed from the filth of your own sin, it's calling you to be a loving people. So who? Who are you to love? Let me help you. Look around. Look around you. There you go. That's who. That's who you're to love. If there's any mystery at all, if you're just, hey, I'm not so sure how I'm supposed to really apply this, look to your left, to your right, look behind you. There you go. That's how the world will know that we follow Jesus, is by our love. You sang that this morning. Let it sink more deeply into your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time to study it together. Lord, we confess together a need for purification. We cannot purify ourselves. But we need your work and we need your grace to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And if there's anyone here that is feeling drawn by your Holy Spirit, is is understanding what the truth is, Lord. I pray that you would give them an obedient heart to repent and trust in Jesus. Therefore, be purified. Therefore, be compelled to love. Lord, there's people in this church that have withheld love, maybe for months or years or decades, some grudge, some little thing, some big thing. Lord, I pray that you would tear all of that down and you would get them to recognize how important it is for them to love each other.
You didn't love us when we were acceptable. You loved us despite our woeful condition. And because you loved us, we loved you. We have loved you, and now we can love others. Compel us, Lord Jesus, by your grace to answer the call of these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Great hearing from the Word of God this morning. Um, for those of you who are here that are planning on joining us for a meal following this with uh, kind of a send-off for the Stoutfords, Doug and Amy, and their family, they're leaving. They've got all their stuff packed up, and they're going to be leaving this week um, to head over uh, across the states. And they're, you know, he's going to take on that new, uh, new position there, and they're just stepping forward in faith. They've seen God open many doors and provide for them in unique ways. So if you're staying to celebrate with them and with us, um, what we'll need to do is we're going to go out these doors here, loop around uh, on the outside wing towards the office and then the children's area, and then we'll go into the audit or to the uh, fellowship hall that way. Um, and then also as well, um, the chairs can be left alone. So we don't need to pack those up today. Um, so thank you for already wanting to do that, but we don't need to do it. Um, and then uh, one last thing, Daniel Silk has been doing a Bible study for the men on Friday morning. Um, at the 580 Coffee House at 630. Uh, it's been going on regularly for uh, several years now. And we're just uh, trusting the Lord again to start a new study. And uh, not this coming week, but the following week, uh, we'll be starting a study. It's called Dust uh, to Glory. And R.C. Sproul leads to that. It's a book of the Bible, you know, kind of step all the way through the story of God's Word. So if you're interested, men, to join at 630, if your schedule allows that, join us at the coffee shop at 580. And Daniel will lead you through that study. And then today we'll grow, we'll grow, yes, and go in God's love and in God's grace. Thank you.